and welcome to the latest edition of Nursing Matters with me, Rachel Hollis. I'm the chair of the Royal College of Nursing's Professional Nursing Committee. I'm a children's cancer nurse and I live in North Yorkshire. On our first podcast of the year, welcome back to my co-host, Professor Alison Leary. Hello, Alison, and how are you this week? Hi, Rachel. I'm very well, just uh, busy as usual. This week's episode is all about the current crisis in the nursing workforce. Alison, you hold the chair of healthcare and workforce modelling in London. We've all learned a bit about modelling in this pandemic. What is workforce modelling? Thanks, Rachel. Uh, Workforce modelling is generally about building a sort of representation of the real world so that we can think about what we can do, how things can go wrong, what kind of resources we need, and understanding a bit about the complexity of things like workforce Um, I'm particularly interested in the interface between workforce and safety across lots of different industries. And we can help really understand what that means during doing modelling. And we're joined by two very special guests who are both returning to the podcast for the second time. So welcome back first to Professor Dame-Anne-Marie Rafferty, past president of the RCN and professor of nursing policy at King's College London. Hello, Anne-Marie. Hi, Rachel and everyone. Great to be here. Great to have you back with us, Anne-Marie. Anne-Marie, the RCN today has called for the implementation of mandatory vaccination for COVID-19 to be delayed because of the impact of staffing levels in the NHS. Do you think that's the right call? I do, actually, at this present moment in time. And I think the RCN's position is a very sensitive one in in both senses of of, of the word. Really, I think... What is needed here is to adopt a stance of what I'd call radical empathy with the people who are doubtful or who've got questions and really try to work diligently and assiduously with with them to really understand and hopefully persuade them that the vaccine does not hold some of the threats that, that they perceive it actually does. And I think there's a true depth of understanding now evolving. And I think we need to really put that uh, messaging much more forcibly into play. And nurses are so well positioned to do that because, as we know from the Veracity Index, they hold number one position in terms of being trusted by the public and they have magnificent contact with with patients, families and, and and their relatives. So I I think we've got to try and stretch this a little bit further. I'd like to introduce Jane Ball, who's a Professor of Nursing Workforce Policy at Southampton University. Hello, Jane, and welcome back to Nursing Matters. Hello, Alison, and hello, hello all. It's really good to be back. You joined us on the podcast, I think it was back in May, to discuss safe staffing. Do you think that things have moved on and the position is even more acute since then? It's hard to know, but they were pretty desperate then and they're definitely still desperate now. So it's um, if it's changed, it's only by very, very small degrees and likely to have got worse um, as opposed to better. We feel like we're in the middle of a, a nursing workforce crisis. And Anne-Marie, you're a historian of the nursing profession, as well as an expert on the nursing workforce. How did we really get into the position we're in now? Wow, that's a a great question, Rachel, with potentially a very long answer. 
even when we think back to the beginning of the National Health Service, I mean, and Iron Bevan referred to the shortage of nurses as a national scandal, and we have a national scandal now uh, in terms of, of the, the workforce uh, trials and tribulations that are challenging us. The point that Bevan made in 1946 was that nursing stood to potentially jeopardise the inception of the National Health Service. And I think it does similarly threaten the future and sustainability of the National Health Service at the moment, because it's such a core part of the infrastructure. And it's sometimes said that when the economy sneezes, the NHS catches a cold, and to which I would add that nursing catches pneumonia. I think that nursing is a very sensitive barometer of the national economy, and it tends to reflect the health of labour market, the health of the the economy, and the the fluctuations that that represents. So we, you know, we saw that nursing was a direct casualty of uh, austerity measures, and uh, that the ups and downs, certainly in England, of commissioning of student numbers and of the cuts in in continuing professional development mean that we are living with that legacy now. As many will know, you know, we had over 40,000 vacancies at the beginning of the pandemic. So we're already starting with a huge deficit. It's, it's all quite sobering, isn't it? I, I was wondering if I could ask Jane whether other countries are, you think are experiencing the same pressures as we are. I think many countries are experiencing similar pressures because we've got for a start everyone of course is going through what is a global pandemic and also added to that there is a global shortage of nurses so um, there's similar pressures I think throughout the world but I feel as if some countries have done better than others at trying to uh, ameliorate the problems at, at, at doing better than others at actually putting some safeguards in into play to ensure that they do what they can to sustain and nourish a nursing workforce because they recognise perhaps better than than we have of late that without nurses, you can't deliver nursing care and without nursing care, many different services can't be provided. So I suspect, and I haven't looked at recent data, but I suspect our levels of people leaving are probably higher than, than many comparable countries and certainly compared to other countries, we make a lot higher use of international recruits. So um, compared to comparable OECD countries, we are much more likely to um, for every uh, yeah to be to be relying on other countries pro- for providing our enough nurses for us, which feels wrong on so many levels. And Marie, you chaired the international committee of the RCN and so played a key role in the decision by members to rejoin the International Council of Nurses. So is that one way that we can think about that sort of international perspective and looking at, at um, I think, as, as Jane has said, international that over-dependency on international recruitment is is wrong on, on so many levels, really? Yes, I would sincerely hope so, Rachel. And uh, I think it needs some very strategic and nifty positioning international recruitment. I mean, we have an update of the 
WHO code of ethics in the wings and we are contributing to that as a college. I'm aware of that and of course many others will be also and I think there's some evidence that that has helped to constrain perhaps some of the most um, egregious practices and dodgy practices in in that sector because we know that, that they have happened in the past. That really deals with some of the government-to-government type uh, or bilateral agreements that, that governments en- enter into. I think the, the Wild West is still very much um, at large with regard to some of the recruiting agencies. I wonder if ha- holding some kind of international summit on this where we are able to talk directly to health and finance ministers internationally, G20, for example, and take these issues to them directly. I think we need more assertive and more strategically targeted and and focused action here. But of course, that presupposes we've got a bit of a game plan behind that. So I think working with the ICN and other agencies that they link to, because they're the only body that does link to UN agencies is certainly the first the first step and let, let's get the conversation going and hopefully some action points on the page. Now I want to just go back to actually something that, that Jane said a little while ago, which was Jane, you said that some countries have done better than than we have done in terms of valuing their nursing workforce. I think, you know, moving sort of back to thinking yeah. about domestic supply. What sort of things do you think um, have made that happen? What, what, in what way is that value made tangible? I'm no expert on on other countries, but I look at what's happening here in the UK, and I read messages on Twitter and social media, and it's more clear to me what the evidence is of how deeply unvalued many nurses mm. feel here. Uh, I. I, I hope that, that it's not as bad in other countries. Certainly it doesn't doesn't seem to be. But I think the kind of obvious symbol of how valued people feel um, is their pay. So pay isn't the most important thing probably to, to professionals like nurses. They don't go into, you don't choose a career in nursing because you want to get rich. But it is a very powerful indicator of how much an organisation appreciates you. I think that low pay rises at a time of incredible crisis send out a, a very powerful and unfortunately negative message. So I think that's one indicator that must make people who are feeling like they're going the extra mile day after day, shift after shift. It's hard, you know, nurses must be finding that something of a kick in the teeth. So I think pay is an important bit, but probably for the for most nurses, and this is why for me it's a cyclical thing, but what we find when we look at the research and different surveys is that for the majority of nurses, their biggest uh, complaint or their biggest issue, biggest problem in their work lives is the fact there aren't enough staff there to deliver care to the standard that they want to see, to the standard that they came into nursing to do, that they were educated to do, and that is the real killer, I think, for many nurses to have to be in a condition where you have to provide substandard care day in, day out. You're not able to do things as well as you like, even when you have stayed on 
uh, way after the shift ended. Even when you have skipped your breaks, even when you have covered for the colleagues who are off sick, still you're seeing the standard of care not good. And so then we have a you know, an increasing problem, a vicious downward spiral of more nurses leaving, putting more pressure on those that are left, causing more nurses to leave. The idea that you can simply fix a workforce crisis like this by recruiting, getting more people in through the front door, whether that's uh, training of more or, or international, that there's no kind of quick way of just turning this tap on and sorting out the problem. Alison, I think that Jane's reflection there sort of very much parallels some of the messages that I know you get through social media about the situations people are, are finding themselves in, in in lots of different settings. What, what, what are you hearing? Yeah, it absolutely does. I mean, the, the sort of strategic decisions and, and, and yeah, political decisions made about perhaps not resourcing the services properly, but what that manifests itself is is the sort of things that I hear about I just in the past week I've had you know district nurse contact me because 50% of her colleagues are off sick I had an agency nurse contact me because she had to work two hours over her shift because literally nobody turned up for the night shift I frequently now get uh, messages from nurses that are coming to work and they are the only RN on a ward or for service and this is just unmanageable really it, it puts an incredible amount of pressure on people to perform. And of course, it's it's unsafe. I think, you know, we, we can debate what safe staffing looks like, but this this can't be safe. I, I don't think in anybody's, in anybody's kind of view that this can be safe. It'd be good to pick up with Jane, actually, on, on that. I mean, there's a range of national guidance, predominantly in acute settings, um, which sets out a requirement to have sufficient staff or the right staff, Um but it's not really delivering. I think, you know, the fact that the NICE guidance just was shelved. Why do you think that the, the evidence isn't delivering on the staffing we need? That's such a good question, Alison. As you say, we, we know there's lots of evidence, but why isn't it impacting on, on how we run services and impacting on policy? I think all the time, I think it's just not really, my, my, it's very much a personal view, but it's, I just don't think it's fully recognised the value of nursing. You know, nurses are trusted, uh, so they seem as nice and trustworthy and honest. But the actual value of what uh, a professionally qualified graduate nurse does and the value of years of experience and developing those skills and becoming an advanced practice nurse or advanced practitioner it's just not fully recognized at the right levels in our system the nice guidance being shelved I mean we do still have that guidance the so the acute guidance and, and for, you know, not everyone maybe is aware because sadly it didn't get virtually any coverage at the time in in national media but nice was asked to develop these guidelines to say what staffing should be and they were asked to do that looking at the evidence and to go one specialty at a time one setting at a time and they did the they produced the guidance and in a very rigorous as they always do fashion looking at the evidence and with a full panel that involved patients and public and a full range of clinicians and managers and people from different contexts and they produced guidance for adult um, inpatient settings they did this because of the Francis inquiry as we know that had found this uh, sort of diabolical care in certain parts of their organization at mid staffordshire and Francis said identified that one problem was 
lack of nurses and a disregard for the importance of nurses. So it was interesting that that guidance stemmed from an organisation not having understood the risks of having cut nurse staffing, of having made decisions about how to get their books to balance by reducing the total number of nurses in certain services, which would be fine to make that decision if you know that you can do it safely. But they had done that without considering the risks. And as a result, actually, the care had been severely compromised. And unfortunately, that led, as, as we know, to many deaths. So, so one of Francis's recommendations was, let's make sure that services get the staffing right. And he actually did consider uh, whether or not there should be mandated minimums. He held back from making that a firm recommendation, but he did. He does make reference to it. Uh, but what he suggested was instead that NICE uh, review the evidence and that they produce some kind of guideline um, for safe staffing. So as, as you say, the adult, the adult um, inpatient acute uh, staffing guidelines were produced um, in 2015, uh, and they made a reference to the fact that certain levels of staffing, so that if such as if you've got um, eight patients or more per registered nurse, that should be considered to be a sort of red flag. It should ring alarm bells and tell you that you need to look at whether you need more staff. As you say, Alison, I mean, the, the absolute shocker was that within months of that coming out, NICE was due to move on to look at community nursing, say, and to look at mental health and other contexts. But that, then suddenly there was an announcement that NICE was no longer going to be required to do this and it was going to be shelved. And it was shelved. So it really says what the problem is, that, that the system is reluctant to hear what nursing is needed in terms of nursing workforce, um, because parts of the system, I guess, ultimately the Treasury, don't want to think about the short-term requirement for for funding to to um, generate that workforce. Yeah, it's, it's very sobering, isn't it? It really is. <laughs> it, it really is. And I mean, on the other hand, that was, what, six, seven years ago, and things evolved, don't they? And I think actually the one possibly silver lining to come out of our horrible COVID context is that it's really made us understand really vividly and make everyone understand that nursing is the the heart of healthcare delivery and that when you are trying to respond to a major health problem like a pandemic, if you haven't got enough nursing staff, then you can't deliver healthcare services Certainly, you can't deliver intensive care unit services or look after acutely ill medical patients. So it's awful that it's taken something like this to to make that point more vividly again. But I'm hopeful that actually that point has been understood. Initially, when we started the pandemic, there was such an emphasis, wasn't there, on making sure that we had enough ICU beds and that so long as we could build those beds or build warehouses and and put enough beds in, then we could be okay. We wouldn't have to worry about the pandemic being too awful. But then we realised there was no one to staff those beds. So it really vividly, I think, brought home to everybody the hopelessness of of ignoring nursing workforce and the absolute critical importance of making sure you've got enough nurses out there. And to do that means making the job making the profession, it's not a job, making the career and the profession, a profession that people want to be in and that people can do their best in without 
fear of constant compromise without having to feel that they've sold out on their ethics and their values. I think that, as, as Jane's mentioned, the, the public visibility of nursing has uh, risen so high, but the challenge is to convert that visibility and the voice that nurses have had and the commentary in the media um, and the appreciation, certainly at the early part of the pandemic with Clap for Carers, which you know was a very positive outpouring of public emotion, I think demonstrates the high regard in which nursing itself is held on the one hand, but I think we need to use the levers that we have in order to ensure that there is a legacy of which we can be proud and that we don't just snap back into a kind of pre-COVID position or situation. I think it's worth also acknowledging that we are a graduate profession, but that thus far we are not really seeing the benefits of that being translated into the pay packet of nurses So although nurses start out their journey roughly comparable with other graduate professions, 10 years on, we're minus 17% in our average earnings. And that begins to slip even further the more that we progress. And I think the second point I'd like to make in relation to the international comparisons is that countries which have regulated advanced practice, which I think many of our graduates see is their, their their heart's desire to, and it's something tangible, and Alison and, and others have studied this in great depth, Australia, the United States, we see they don't have the levels of shortage that we have. So if we create these career pathways with clear kind of staging posts along the way and investment and not this lottery of continuing professional education, which is what we've been saddled with. Yes, we need pay, but we also need progression within the pay system. And we saw that in Northern Ireland, where we had too many nurses congregated in the, the at, at band five due to pay stagnation and what I call this the sticky floor, really holding people back. So we need a pay system which is actually fit for purpose. And at the moment, it doesn't seem to be because it's not enabling nurses to progress up, unhooking us from this addiction to international recruitment. It buys us some time. But as we've seen from what happened in India, we're very reliant India and the Philippines, when COVID has created catastrophic levels of um, cases in India, that has really hit. Indian nurses, and I think the pandemic's demonstrated that health economies can't afford to lose uh, these highly skilled professionals. I think my third thing would be regulating uh, advanced practice. That would give us stability. It would also give us aspiration and support of the workforce at the upper level. And a coherent plan for the fourth point uh, element of the bundle for continuing professional development. It needs to be demand-led, population needs. Alison, get your modelling and you and your pals get out there. I mean, right across the career span, like doctors do, you know, they have a very clear career pathway. 
with investment at different jumps along the way, career points. So, and they haven't been slammed or susceptible to the slashes and cuts to CPD as nurses have. It's been a balancing element in, in budgets. With those elements aligning and working together, we can actually begin to build back much better. We have been it's pretty staggering how nimble the NHS has by, you know, increasing its ITU bed capacity by 300% during this pandemic. That's seriously impressive. So we can actually do it. But how do you make build that into the routine kind of operating environment for the NHS so that you promote retention and give people the psychosocial help that they need to stay the distance in the service and develop the flexibility, you know, flexible enough workforce so that people can work across a series of different patches and and, and areas of expertise. And that adds to the skill set and therefore the value and what should be reflected in in remuneration. So it all comes back full circle. Your prescription, Anne-Marie, for for taking that forward. Um, Jane, is there anything of those elements that you'd either add to or want to elaborate on the Anne-Marie Rafferty bundle for taking us forward? Uh, Well, it's a fabulous bundle. Uh, And what I'm really struck by listening to Anne-Marie there is the fact of how interconnected all those things are. So when you first were talking there about pay, when people worry, think about the fact there's a shortage of nurses, when we're looking at that and then when we're talking about retention, there's a phrase that comes out in the from the repair project, which is the re- reducing um, the attrition amongst uh, pre-registration nurses project. That they, they refer to the first two or three years in nursing as the flaky bridge, you know, recognising that actually many nurses don't last in NHS nursing in particular but potentially in nursing at all, beyond the first two or three years of graduating. And that phrase sort of, uh, I don't like that phrase much, because it makes it sound like sort of flaky nurses to me. But actually then putting it into the context of what you're just saying there, Anne-Marie, about the, the pay structure and the lack of progression, it says to me something about that we're not actually, that we're not short of ner- of people who want to go into nursing. So when we're talking about a crisis, often the general public and I suspect politicians uh, think, well, surely we can just get more people interested in going into nursing. But actually, we're not we're not short of people interested in going into nursing. But we are finding that people don't stay in it for very long. So I think that, that behind all of this, it comes back for me as being a thing about not really valuing the worth of nursing and the development of nursing skills. So it's as though one pair of hands is much like another. And so even with our N50K target that we've got at the moment, with the government trying to get 50,000 more nurses into NHS England in the next two years, that target is, of course, just very generic. It's 50,000 more nurses, but it doesn't say what kind of skills are needed where. It doesn't talk about whether they should be mental health nurses, community nurses, nurses who've got orthopedic skills, gynecological skills, family planning, school nurses, prisons. It, you know, it, it treats all nurses as much of a muchness. And it doesn't say what we really need is, say, nurses who've got, you know, five years of experience. They're the people or 10 years of experience or 20 years of experience. That it's just actually we just need more. We need to kind of go beyond just simple 
we need more nurses, whether it's us as a as a royal college or, or as a, a body of, of nurses, or whether it's the government, just more without differentiating is is such an insult really to the the variation and the and the the differences and the fact that there are different geographical needs as well that that what it's like you know the needs of a of a organization in the center of london is quite different from the needs maybe of a, of a hospital or, or a community in yorkshire potentially in in a, a rural area or something so those things say that you're not really valuing it and you're not going to then put right this problem um the same with workforce planning you know why is it that we don't have parity in how we think about and work out how many healthcare professionals you need. The medical profession has detailed reports for every specialty on how many radiographers we're likely to need, how many ophthalmologists, how many pediatricians, how many general practitioners. But we just, nursing, we just get, we think we need 50,000 in the next few years. It's an insult that to not have more respect and understanding. And it, it, it's, all those other things would be the way in which that truly treating nursing as a profession and getting them the most possible benefit from it so that that benefit from nursing can translate into better outcomes, shorter lengths of stay, patients getting well more quickly when they're in hospital, fewer patients having to go into hospital, better community health, better preventative um, health care to avoid people getting sick. All of that is the benefit you get if you've got a good, strong nursing services that's where nurses are allowed to really use their varied and different skills to the full rather than being treated as a pair of hands that are kind of disposable I find it quite interesting that I you know I never have to prove my worth as a mathematician or and I never did as an engineer um you constantly seem to have to do it as nursing <laughs> I find that very odd that you know the largest safety critical profession in healthcare needs to prove its worth mm. And, you know, we have these sorts of conversations and, and the bar for evidence seems incredibly high. I, I do do the modelling for some medical specialities and, you know, you, you submit that to the RCP or whatever and, and then that's it. That's that's what they go with. Whereas we produce paper after paper after paper about safe staffing in nursing. And, you know, you, you can't help but feel that there's some inequity in there in the in the weight of that. You know, it's, it's the same modelling, <laughs> but there seems to be quite a lot of inequity in the way that the workforces and their values are, are viewed. It's really difficult to know how to challenge that, isn't it? To challenge that in a way that actually is going to move things forward as opposed to simply complaining. Because, I'm, you know, none of us, I think, here, are, we're not interested in these things for the sake of it. We're interested in them mm. because we want a profession that, that people can be a pr- proud to be a part of and can thrive in and we can get the best out of people challenging those those differences and those lack of parity I sometimes wonder as well how well people actually understand that lack of parity and that that those inequalities and inequities and particularly the publics because I think they may be quite shocked to realize various things like the fact that you know, you do that a, a nursery, a childminder can only have a certain number of children and that that is a mandated level and under close scrutiny with how many children a childminder of each age a childminder can have. So you're not going to let a childminder look after 
seven children under the age of two, yet we do have the situation that you can have one registered nurse looking after 20 acutely ill patients. And there's absolutely nothing to, not only to prevent that, but there's nothing even very firmly telling people that that's not okay. There's no really clear standards to say this is unacceptable. I think the public has no idea that that potentially the people, when they, if they or their loved ones are, say, in, in a, on a hospital ward, I don't think they know that the people in uniforms that look like nurses aren't all nurses. And actually, there is nothing to ensure that they will have access to the kind of skilled care that they perhaps are assuming that's what they're getting. And, and it's not fair on support workers who are left doing incredibly difficult work, which actually they require much more preparation in many cases to do and are not being adequately paid for. Yeah, it's really interesting that working across different industries, many of them have these sort of fail-safe type levels of staffing. So so not optimal staffing, but but a, a level which staffing must never drop. So you see that in aviation, you see it in retail grocery, you see it in lots of different, you can see it in football, actually. Nursing doesn't have that and, and nursing's never really called for it. Do you think it's time to call that and say where that line is? you know, have some sort of red line. I know lots of people who contact me are are very keen on ratios, but having some kind of line that must never be crossed and and being really explicit about that as a profession and as a Royal College. It's time to have that debate and that discussion, Alison. I take your points, you know, both Jane's and and yours on fail-safe and kind of minimum standards. I mean, we we have the standards on staffing, but what would really give those standards teeth is actually being backed up with some kind of legislative mechanism that does mandate minimum standards and stipulates what those should be, and those should be professionally determined and driven. And that is something I think that would be easy to communicate to the public and politicians, they would get it immediately. And many of them, of course, probably come from different backgrounds where some of those already exist. The whole issue of ratios, which in fact is the best evidenced formulation and approach that, that, that we have to determining staffing standards now, I think that gives confidence that you're actually on a strong footing when those do relate to better patient outcomes. So I think now is the time to be really pushing for ratios or it may be ranges, depending what people feel more comfortable with. And I think that that kind of discussion is something that we need to have as a college, not a never-ending discussion, but I think to put it out there and actually see what members want. I mean, as you've already indicated, Alison, people are contacting you about this because just people must be so, well, frustrated at the end of their tether. Just look, you know, you've got to call time on what's been going on at some point, draw a line under it and say, look, enough's enough. This hasn't been fixed by evidence-based, by guidelines, by, by various types of approaches and we've seen how staffing is such a political issue in in nursing and 
understanding the emotionality, what lies behind it, you know, fear. You can't make policy on the basis of fear, fear of ballooning budgets or, well, you know, we've got ballooning budgets in the current kind of pandemic, you know, adding a few extra billion on, <laughs> if that's what it takes. But there's actually economic evidence that suggests that you don't have ballooning budgets with ratios, isn't there? This is not going to, like, tip the Treasury into some kind of collapse. It's actually on the grounds of moral justice and social justice. It's a must-do for us, and I think now's the time to do it. And look at the costs, as as you say, Anne-Marie, look at the costs associated with having to use high levels of agency staff to cover a service that's constantly got a shortage, the costs of having patients not being able to be discharged, the costs of of lengthy stays in hospital because of complications developed that could have been avoided if if various aspects of nursing care could have been delivered better. The costs of not having enough nurse staffing are huge. Absolutely. Um, And that's what we we so rarely have really understood. And And the costs of fixing a shortage are massive. When you've got like a situation with the, as I say, uh, I don't like the term, but with the flaky bridge of nurses leaving within a few years, the cost of replacing each nurse is big. The cost of covering the vacancy while you try and fail, the knock-on effects, as as we were talking earlier about, if you can't replace someone, then the the knock-on effects of the pressure that puts on the rest of the team, then another member of staff leaves, and then the cost of that. So the costs are just growing all the time. The, the costs of getting it wrong are massive. So we can't afford to keep on not attending to getting it right. And we've been trying, I think, that the system's been trying to get it right or it's been trying to get by instead of trying to get it right. I can't see any other way. So if there was a different way, then I'd be glad to hear about it. But, you know, we, as you say, we've tried that there's been the guidelines what difference did they make? I'm not sure. Uh, I'm really not sure they made much difference at all. We're in about as worse situation as we can be this last year or so in terms of nursing workforce. And we know it's going to get so much worse with the after effects of, of COVID that a huge amount of sickness absence we've had, that many people will see this as the, just the final straw, that they've tried really hard to keep to stick it out, but they, they just have had enough. And you, you it really saddens me, like looking at Twitter and the messages, but also knowing that that leaves, you know, that leaves a service so stripped back. So I, I, if there were other ways, I, I can't, I just cannot see what alternative there is. But as you say, to draw some red lines to say, this is not OK. And, and actually, we have no problem with drawing those kind of setting standards. Uh, you know, we, we have a legal speed limit. People don't find that outrageous. They uh, probably, you know, they understand that that, that means that, by and large, that helps to keep the road safer. <laughs> Having some kind of speed limits, and actually within towns especially, you know, you then have a different speed limit because those roads have got more density of pedestrians and people in traffic, and people understand that. Different limits for different contexts, um, but it makes sure that there's a basic safety, that if we were allowing people to drive at 60 miles an hour, through the centre of villages and towns and cities, that would be hugely uh, dangerous. In other aspects of our life, we're used to and take for granted that actually that's what legislation is for, is to keep us safe. And that's what we want it to do, to keep to keep us safe. And yes, it's not, we haven't got anything 
to keep patients or nurses safe. Nurses are practicing in conditions that really adversely affect their mental health. The biggest cause of sickness absence in the NHS is related to mental health issues, stress, burnout, uh, depression, and so on. So it's it's not just for the for the greater good of patients that we need some kind of red line, some minimum standard, I think. We need that workforce to stay healthy, well, to want to carry on in nursing, because it's much more cost effective to train someone once and get a good, you know, 30 years plus service out of them and for them to progress and develop their skills and to be able to, they then can support the next generation. And, you know, that is a so much more cost effective model. And meanwhile, as well, you you have an effective service that looks after patients better. So time for us to draw those red lines, but I'm really sorry. It's also time for us to draw an end to, to this episode of our podcast. I think we could carry on talking all evening and we, we've spoken before about um, you know the fact that this is the time and, and as both for the profession and for our Royal College of Nursing where we do draw some of those red lines and, and use the opportunity that the pandemic you know, has given us I think to really focus on how we can truly build that sustainable workforce that's so easy to talk about but so difficult to bring together in practice. We'll be back in two weeks and we'd love to know what our listeners would like us to talk about. Tell us what you're interested in or concerned about in the world of nursing by tweeting us at the RCN with the hashtag Nursing Matters. And we'll do our best to cover them in future episodes. And I'm sure we'll be coming back to the nursing workforce. So for this week, thanks to our special guests, Jane Ball. Thank you, Jane. You're most welcome. Thank you for having me. And Anne-Marie Rafferty. Always a pleasure to be here. And thanks to my co-host, Alison Leary. Great to be back, Rachel. Remember to follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you've got time, give us a nice positive review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to spread the word about Nursing Matters. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and we'll see you next time. Mm -hmm.